0: Failure. System failure. And I'm going to be in the middle of it. And then it's going to be, what about us? Well, why, did, why, did, why didn't I get any potato chips? Come on, help us out, Hurley. Well, why'd you get Kate the shampoo? And why didn't I get the peanut butter? Then they'll get really mad and start asking, why does Hugo have everything? Why should he get to decide? Then they'll all hate me. Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 204, entitled Everybody Hates Hugo. This is the 28th overall episode, and there are 93 to go. First though, a uh, couple of quick tidbits of uh, feedback. A couple weeks ago, I'd received a pretty lengthy email from Ethan, so I figured I'd uh, chop up some of the different things that he had to say. First, uh, he definitely had some praise indeed. He said, love your podcast, one of the best ever about Lost, and I've heard them all. You're great at what you do. Keep them coming. So thank you very much, Ethan. And uh, Ethan uh, did have a small criticism and a fair one at that. It's also something that uh, the famous uh, Bonnie has also pointed out on uh, how how I have been mispronouncing the name of the wonderful Lost Composer So, as Ethan said You've mentioned the name of this Emmy, Oscar And Grammy winner many times But unfortunately you have gotten his name pronounced wrong Soft G, hard K Kino, not Chino So indeed, Michael Giacchino And for some reason my brain just does not want To wrap itself around that fact But uh, sure enough It is Michael Giacchino, as you can tell From this clip from the Golden Globes And I'm gonna uh, Michael I won't feel too bad, though, because as you'll hear, Cher also has some difficulty with that name as well. The Golden Globe goes to Michael Giacchino. So there you go. By the way, uh, if you are a particular Michael Giacchino fan, see I'm practicing saying Giacchino, uh, he's been on Twitter for uh, oh, about six or eight weeks or so. And uh, you can follow him at M underscore Giacchino. So there you go. He uh, he tends to share kind of cool stuff. You know, it's like just kind of um, kind of off the wall stuff or pictures from trips he's taking or whatever. So it's kind of cool. But anyhow, with that, let's now get to the Wikipedia summary of the episode read by me. And you might say, why me? Well, in the past couple weeks, I've done a poor job uh, emailing some people who would express interest. So I do apologize for that. Hopefully you'll be able to hear other people sharing their Wikipedia summaries soon, but first, here's me. In flashbacks, following Hurley's discovery of his winning lottery numbers, Hurley keeps his win a secret and quits his job at a fast food restaurant, along with his friend Johnny. The pair enjoy themselves by pulling a prank on their former boss, Randy Nations. Hurley asks Johnny to promise that they will never change, and Johnny does so. Johnny pulls into a local gas station to buy some beer, but notices news crews talking to the attendant. When the clerk loudly points out Hurley as the buyer of the winning lottery ticket, Johnny's stunned expression clearly reveals that, despite his promise, everything has changed. On the island, in the Swan Station, Hurley struggles with the task of food rationing. Charlie asks Hurley if the bunker contains food, specifically peanut butter for Claire, but Hurley will not answer him. Hurley decides to enlist Rose to help him take inventory. At one point, Hurley has a strange dream, in which Jin tells Hurley in English that everything is going to change. Hurley becomes less and less certain of his ability to ration the food in a manner that keeps everyone happy. He attempts to quit, but John Locke refuses to permit him. Hurley then prepares to blow up the pantry with dynamite, but Rose intervenes. He explains that the food, newfound wealth to the survivors, will change everything and everyone will come to hate him, just as things changed when everyone knew he won the lottery. However, Rose talks him out of his plan. Later Hurley informs Jack of his decision to give all the food away, arguing that the food stores do not amount to very much when divided among all the survivors. The food is distributed freely and the survivors enjoy an enormous feast. Everyone appreciates Hurley's decision, including Charlie, who gives his benefactor a hug of reconciliation. Meanwhile, the bottle of messages from the raft, on which Sawyer, Jin, Michael, and Walt were traveling, washes ashore. Claire and Shannon give it to Sun, Jin's wife, as she, uh, and she opts to bury the bottle on the beach. In the hatch, Jack and Saeed inspect the mysterious concrete barricade, blocking what appears to be a corridor into another section of the bunker. They discover that the barrier is very thick and the corridor is also blocked on the foundation level. Later, Jack and Kate share a moment of sexual tension when she exits the shower wearing only a towel. Lastly, across the island, Sawyer, Michael, and Jin learn that their captors are survivors from the tail section of Oceanic 815 and are taken to a Dharma Initiative Station, which they use as sanctuary. A woman named Libby says there were 23 survivors from the tail section, although very few remain lastly an unknown man introduces himself to michael as bernard rose's husband so there you go and now let's get into my thoughts about the episode the episode opens as uh, suggested last week with slow mo hurley ogling at all the food you know i get it the fat man reaches for the candy and the chips complete with bouncy music granted you know it is a dream that much is hinted as uh, Hurley finds pre-boxed dinners of steak, potato, and veggies on fine China. Um, And of course, I mean, (laughs) I suppose the larger clue then is uh, Jin speaking English and Hurley speaking Korean and uh, the guy in the uh, Mr. Clucks outfit. But there you go. Um, There was also a little fun moment that the milk milk box that Hurley's drinking out of has a, you know, missing Walt uh, picture on it. So a nice little touch there. Um, also as a side note too, in that scene, it's a nice touch to let poor old Daniel Day Kim speak English for the first time in 27 episodes. I mean, granted he's spoken, you know, some monosyllabic English words here and there, but to really give him English dialogue, uh, I'm sure it was a, it was an interesting moment for him where it's like, wow, I really get to speak. This is great. Um, I like too, that once Hurley wakes up to push the button, there is a conversation between him and Kate about how they have jobs again, albeit jobs involving the hatch. Hurley says, hooray for that, and pushes the execute button, after inputting the numbers, of course. Granted, much hay has been made about the button reading execute and not enter or return, but the visual still is nice. You know, we have jobs, hooray, execute. Anyhow, back to the uh, back to the y pit, as I'm calling it there's a bit of dialogue which essentially is recap uh, disguised as conversation. Michael says every minute in the pit is time he could be spending to get his son. Sawyer says that they have to wait while Rambina, nice nickname, Rambo Rambina, while Rambina and company decide their fate. Essentially, it's just like, you know, if you're just joining us, here's what's going on with these people. Um, Also, too, in that scene... You know, you get to see Mr. Echo for the first time in his true scenes as a character, you know, a fully fleshed human being, as opposed to a crazy eyed, crazy man with a crazy stick. Um, And seeing this first time that we're just getting a glimpse of the character, some of his quiet composure, some of his, uh, you know, in in a later scene uh, where Anna Lucia really is, you know, bringing the hammer down on Sawyer, you know, he'll just kind of, you know, he'll say, you know, Anna, he's trying to hold her back a little bit verbally um, you know, he really is that, you know, what we're seeing is the aftermath of the of this redeemed person, um, and somebody who clearly has had to, to deal with just these awful, you know, alternate uh days of the tail section people have had. But um it makes me almost sad as I was saying, just because they had plans for Echo. They had big plans, the the show did and at the end of the day the actor just didn't like Hawaii didn't like being away from the UK and he wanted out of the show now i know on the flip side i believe that a lot of the a lot of the um, oh shall we say a lot of the the turf that echo was going to be covering was turf that was given to ben so if that's the trade off i mean that's an excellent trade off but you know, how great would it have been to have had uh, to have had uh, ben and echo and, and indeed, you know, I'm, I'm reminded, and I think this is true, but I'm reminded of the, at least the rumor, that they made an offer to the actor to appear in uh, the church scene in the in the series finale, and just the money they were offering him wasn't good enough. Um, to me, it would have been nice if he was there. I didn't miss him that he was gone, quite frankly. Um, so there you go. Anyhow, Um in that scene, too, we also see how Anna Lucia is truly Sawyer's equal. She points a gun at them and says for Jin and Michael to come up. Sawyer rationalizes that she won't shoot, and they get a rock thrown at him. And there's also just one of the greatest endings of a teaser act that Lost has ever done. And then coming up here in a Warm moment, me, the lid is down here. dropped. We cut to black. And that's just said in, you know, against the dark screen. It really is, uh, really is wonderful. So, and with that, the teaser act is over and the episode proceeds. By the way, as I am recording this, an update about the pronunciation of the lost composer's name. I actually had, uh, right before recording, I had sent an apologetic uh, uh, tweet to the gentleman in question and I said, um, apologies, Mr. Giacchino, and he (laughs) He responded a few moments later and said, "Thanks, but for clarity, my name is actually pronounced Giacchino, not Gia, as it looks." So, there you go, <laughs> one and all, straight from the uh, straight from the horse's mouth himself, Michael Giacchino. All said and done, I, I must say I'm honored indeed that he uh, took the time to respond to a uh, a meager jerk as me who was pronouncing his name uh, incorrectly so many times. So. Um, well, there you go. I, I, as I said, I'm kind of tickled pink to have received a tweet from Michael Giacchino, but I won't be making a mistake again. Whew. After that, well, how do you how do you follow that up? Um, after the commercial break, we see how far the show has matured. Essentially, at this point, either you, you, you either understand it or you don't, which is to say after the break, we're in a flashback albeit one that we've seen before, at least the beginning of, of, of Hurley winning the lotto. There's no whoosh, there's nothing as frail as the early flashbacks where someone would say, can you be sure in a situation like this, then then there'd be a close-up while they think about the time when blah, 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 and they'd flash back to that. This is just, we're not on, not on the island anymore, we're in the past, we're in a completely different situation, go. Um, and indeed, I have to say too, I mean, seeing that scene continue, seeing Hurley's mom, it just, it leads to a range of issues done very, very quickly. She discusses Jesus. She's sarcastic and funny. And she gives Hurley a chance to be heartfelt. To change your life, You think someone else will change it for you? Maybe if you pray every day Jesus Christ will come down from heaven, take 200 pounds and bring you a decent woman and a new car. Yes, Jesus can bring you a new car. Maybe I don't want to change. Maybe I like my life. That must be Jesus. Hola. Momento. Yes, it is Jesus. He wants to know what color car you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you top that? Yes, it is Jesus. He wants to know what color car you want. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's mean and it's funny and it's sarcastic and it's her trying to... Uh, you know, uh, trying to move Hurley's life along with uh, the stick more than the carrot, and um, you know, there's also just that glimmer of Hurley essentially saying, you know, what's wrong with me liking the me that I am now? Um, you know, which in and of itself is not uh, not a bad message. Uh, so there you go, very uh, very sweet sweet moment of Hurley out of some rather sour mothering there, but. Anyhow, moving on, after the flashback, there's some rather awkward dialogue between Hurley and Charlie. I'm not sure why the show does that from time to time. Have Hurley kind of stumble and bumble over his, I don't know, dudes, and his, it's a bunker, I guesses. You know, at least it lets Charlie go from being a bit vindictive to funny. Well, at least funny and vindictive. You gonna lie to me? You gonna lie to the baby? Dude, look, i never lie. Oh, and the time you told me you worth $150 million? It's $156 million. I'm sorry. I must confuse it with the $900 trillion I am worth myself. And this baby's made of chocolate lollipop, so if you'll excuse us, I'm going to flap my wings and fly off this island. That's Dominic Monaghan, ladies and gentlemen. That's just it to a nutshell. And I, you know, that line is so wonderful there. I wonder if it was entirely scripted or if it's just something that he came up with or whatever. But, you know, it's just, obviously hilarious and uh you know it's also delivered with a bit of anger though it's not complete comedy it's uh you know i mean he's he's genuinely annoyed he's genuinely upset furthermore it's illustrating the overall um notion of the episode which is that you know if hurley has these things and withholds them in any way if anybody feels withheld upon that it'll be the case that everybody hates hugo as the every, as the everybody as the episode title is so it's just uh, i mean this is an episode where all the pieces are working together everything is helping illustrate the other portions and it's just uh, it's just so well done of course after that scene um especially you know hurley kind of smarting from the talking to he just got from his friend he goes to talk to rose now Seeing Hurley go chat with Rose, I have to say I was initially worried. I I love the character, of course, but you know, we discussed last season how she's occasionally used or perhaps misused as a source of folksy down-to-earth wisdom, which is occasionally a stereotype given to black characters. Still, though, I think that this particular scene, while veering towards that kind of notion of, you know, oh, she has wisdom no one else has access to, it it veers toward that. However, with dialogue, you know, well, especially with dialogue like, that hatch won't help me get my laundry done, it does show Hurley caring and sharing. After all, if Rose is on laundry duty, why not help her out with the washer and the dryer? And who in the world could possibly complain about something like that? Hurley, who else did you tell? No one. I swear. Dude, it's a big job. I needed... help. Hello, Jack. Hey, Rose. All this is food. It's only a matter of time before we have to tell everyone what we found down here. So, you know what to do? Inventory all of it figure out how we make it last and in the meantime nobody gets anything no exceptions that's your responsibility okay oh jack why are you being so conservative keeping all the goodies for yourself making sure that the stupid common masses don't muck things up for you in your wonderful mansion here you know god forbid anyone get anything before king jack says so He's just so tremendously irritating in this episode. And what the podcast can't capture is that when Hurley and Rose are walking down the the hall in the hatch there and Jack comes out and enters the hall, he clearly has heard Hurley talking to somebody. Perhaps he's identified it as Rose or perhaps he's identified it as a voice that isn't part of the coolest of the cool club of Locke, Kate, Jack, Saeed, and Hurley. So there's this look of, I mean, it's beyond annoying. Annoyance. it's like he's just eaten crap that's the look on his face that somebody has dared cross him I mean it, it's almost to the point where it's like I don't know I mean I'm sure Matthew Fox is a lovely man I, I, I have no reason to, to think that he isn't but you sit and wonder like like I'd be concerned about you know ticking him off in the slightest way for fear that that there's a tenth of the ire that Jack has you know I mean I mean anyhow uh, <laughs> Certainly, I don't need to pile on the actor who's effectively uh, communicated this character for 121 episodes, but it's just, you know, it's it's just Jack. And aside from Jack the Jerk, that's where we suddenly, you know, with Rose in the hatch and with her starting to talk, we suddenly start to realize why, precisely why, from a story point of view, Rose is here, why she's in the hatch, why she's in this episode. Oh, the candy is candy. That's what Bernard always says. Talk about a sweet tooth. A man has a mouth full of sweet teeth. Bernard, that was your husband? is my husband. Oh, but I thought he was in the back of the plane. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. that's okay. Don't feel bad. Bernard is fine. I know him. The, the greatness of this episode is in its ending, which we'll, we'll talk about in due course. But for as much as some of that might sound like rehash dialogue, bringing in new people, you know, the same complaints I had about similar dialogue at the beginning of the episode. You know, Lost has to deal with or had to deal with a, you know, a litany of people watching it. And, you know, th- these episodes are among the highest watched, over 20 million people, many of them new. Many, many of them new, good good five million or so that were new over last season. So there is a certain responsibility in the show at times to connect the dots. The entire show can't be, hey, do you remember, you know 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 episodes ago when we told you about something, you know, do you remember? There's ton, ton of tons of us that did, many more of us who would be reminded through, podcasts while the show was on through doc jensen on ew.com through tons and tons of websites etc through talking around the water cooler on and on and on but you know there's times where you know they're setting up this wonderful ending this wonderful ending at the end of the episode and you know an ending that we'll talk about soon enough i'm so tempted to talk about it now but you know they want the full craft of that ending to be appreciated so they're kind of you know Connecting the dots here, and I think that that's fair. That you know, it's been forever since we talked about uh, Rose's husband. It's it's been ages and ages and ages. Particularly if you're watching this for the first time when it aired, it's not just a case of X number of episodes ago, but it might have been you know, if this episode is airing in perhaps I don't have it in front of me, but perhaps October or November. Uh, probably not as late as November, probably October of 2005, it would have aired. We perhaps haven't had Rose discuss her husband since maybe February. Uh, Probably not much past that. Perhaps March. I I, I doubt that. Certainly just in the course of, you know, thinking about the show, you've enjoyed the first season, then you've had three, three and a half months uh, to to be away from it. In that time, you might have gone on vacation or barbecues, et cetera, et cetera. There's been Your life has continued, even though the show's life has not in its time off. So it's fair for them to be reminding you of something from so long ago. Um, I mean, similarly, you know, I'm I'm thinking of uh, the episode Across the Sea where, you know, they they tack the ending on at the end, the ending at the end. Yeah, there you go. They tack on the ending from, you know, where where we're seeing uh, the Adam and Eve uh, skeletons discovered for the first time just to hammer home what we have seen. Just to say, here's where it fits. You shouldn't be relied upon to remember something from five and a half years ago. So anyhow, it's, uh, I. well, I can't wait to get to the end. Um, in flashbacks, we see Hurley's boss, who is, of course, the evil Randy Nations, who will end up working at that box company, uh, a box company owned by none other than Hurley. It's just a wonderful, wonderful touch there. And it's a wonderful storyline for Randy Nation. It's just, you know, a little itty bitty thing. Um, I know he appears in, um, I think Trisha Tanaka is dead. Perhaps he appears in a couple more episodes. I think I recall hearing in the season three opener, he's outside the convenience store, but you couldn't, you can only see that in uh, widescreen, which I did not have at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So, but just this notion of he's such an awful. Well, you know what I mean. He's not that awful to Hurley. Let, let's be fair. We, we hate him because of how awful he is to Locke, but Randy Nations has shown here. I mean, he's just you know he's just the manager of a fast food place, and he has a worker who who he caught on camera eating an eight piece chicken bucket while reading a magazine while on duty. That Randy Nations also uh, complains about Hurley giving away too many napkins. I mean, that's precisely the kind of thing that makes. You know, small-minded uh, corporate people. Well, <laughs> become small-minded corporate people because somebody tells them napkins cost one eighth of a cent a piece, and this entire corporation spends X amount on napkins. So therefore, get on your you know $7.50 an fifteen-hour employees to not give away too many napkins well, along with this meal that you use your hands for. So, but anyhow, evil randy nations that that Hurley uh, well that Hurley brings back into the world of employment. So that's quite a bit of uh, mileage there. For uh, I probably discussed him more than he was in the episode. But anyhow, I mean, let's look at this episode as a whole just for a moment. This episode really has a sense of moving a lot of pieces a little way. In the previous weeks, we've ignored some storylines. We had one episode without Michael Jinn and Sawyer. We've gone over other storylines three times. The hatch, the, the entering of the hatch. But here we have Charlie complaining to Locke about not being in the know. Saeed investigating what's on the other side of the concrete, Hurley inventorying, inventorying food, Claire finding messages in the bottle from the raft, the taily pit. It's just, it's a lot going on. And indeed, speaking of the taily pit, we finally leave it and we see Anna Lucia's brand of leadership, kicking butt and taking names. It's foretelling too, as I, as I mentioned before, that Echo tries to hold her back, albeit briefly and, and just by saying her name. Upon first viewing, she's just making a splash as a new tough character, right? I mean, you kind of, it's just a way to communicate the newness of this character. Looking back, though, we know that the horror, you know, we know about the horrors that have visited her uh, and all the tail section survivors, and that Analysia's tough leadership is certainly thought by some to be necessary. Um, and I mean, we'll discuss that in greater detail when we get to the other 48 days, but Certainly, you know, I don't think that she's out of line for reacting the way she does. Given the severity of what happened to them, that they've gone from 23 people down to about six. Uh, so because what do we have? We have Anna Lucia, Echo, Libby, Bernard and um, and uh, the flight attendant Cindy. Cindy, there you go. So six, that was a good uh, good guess on my part. But anyhow, uh, we move back to Locke and Charlie. Charlie's getting the answers that he had, uh, he had asked for earlier. And uh, if there's any political or governmental or philosophical take from this episode, I love that Locke is, unsurprisingly, the opposite of Jack. Locke doesn't feel the need to scream everything from the mountains, but if someone cares enough to get involved in the process, you know, um, you, you can fill in process for whatever you want for, for politics or government or or the community, whatever it might be. If somebody cares enough to be involved, Locke tells them what's what. Does he do it because it's his way? Does he do it to mess with Jack? For both reasons, you know, I, I suppose that's open to interpretation, but uh, it, uh, it, you know, it's a nice moment of just kind of openness of the openness of Locke. At any rate, Charlie confronts Hurley about the food. It's a Common enough scene about you know showing that uh, telling everybody might lead to panic, um, but the transition is what counts. Charlie storms off, and the flashback takes us to Hurley and his rather thin friend goofing off and joking on uh, Drive Shaft CDs, kind of you know, oh well, basically denigrating the the fine band and their their hit single. Another nice touch is uh, Saeed and Jack exploring underneath the hatch, basically. They do all that just to, to deliver the line, but how there's so much concrete poured over that one section of the hatch that it's like Chernobyl. Obviously, obviously they return to this mystery big time at the end of season five, but I suppose throughout season five as well, right? Don't we open season five with uh, Daniel in the in the hatch in the in, in the seventies? Still, though, for this episode, part of me feels like it's presented as such a big mystery and like they don't really pay it off. I mean, granted, they do pay it off, but I just kind of have this feeling like it was such a mystery, big mystery then. And then when it finally gets answered, it's just kind of like, eh, you know, it's not qu- it doesn't quite live up to the mystery. Um, perhaps my feelings will change when we do that episode, you know, in about a year. So keep listening, dear listeners. Anyhow, back to the tailies. After the terrifying intro of Echo and the tough-ass intro of Anna Lucia, we get Libby's grand introduction. I'm Libby. Michael. Dun-dun-dun-dun. All right, to be fair, there is a bit more than that. I'm Libby. Michael. How many of you? You know, on the other side of the island. We left around 40. How many of you survived? 23 of us. So as I said, there was a bit more than her just saying, hi, I'm Libby, which is her introduction to the series. Uh, At least in dialogue, we had seen her in a few other scenes. But her performance is quite good, too. She has these nervous, scared looks. She, of course, is sharing that there were 23 survivors from the plane crash. Um, There's also, in this scene, a bit later in this scene, there's symmetry uh, between their story and that of uh, you know our friends back in the uh, the swan hatch, which is to say that the tailies make it to their hatch, and you know uh, there's the secret knock, uh, which is a difference, of course, and also too we see that unnamed white guy who was in Forrest Gump opens up the door, unlocks their hatch door. You know, to seeing the Arrow Hatch on wide screen, I have to say it looks a tad bigger. What with being able to see some rooms off to the side. Uh, still, though, I mean, overall, it is meant to be a contrast. The Swan Hatch is luxurious by survival standards. We see Kate stepping out of the hot shower, or at least we saw that a bit earlier in the episode. It has a bounty of food delivered from time to time, record player, books, washer, dryer. The Arrow Hatch—it's been picked clean. It's Essentially a cave that was just built by man, you know, a cave with a couple of couple of electric lights. It's about it And also too as Michael's looking around seeing that there are only six people plus plus uh, The the three former raft people the Libby line from before gets paid off and it does so to end the act Don't you said there were 23? They were Of course, there the scene ends with the uh, requisite Giacchino music. See how I'm saying it properly there, Mr. Giacchino? I'm finally getting it right. Um, Anyhow, changing subjects. Earlier in the episode, Charlie makes his plea to Locke to sit at the adults' table complaining that everybody isn't on the A-team. This point is hammered home, intentionally or not, when Claire, you know, at this point in the episode, when Claire shares the newly found message in a bottle. Claire has her baby. Shannon is walking her dog and son is gardening and the three of them are together discussing this. Would a spa day have been too much? I mean, yes, this show has capable women who are the equals of their male counterparts. However, the gardener, the dog walker, and the mommy worrying about letters in a bottle, that's not capable on the level of, uh, well, that other characters are. And that's also not to say, by the way, that these characters aren't capable. It's just that they're not being presented in a in a capable manner in this episode. So it's a bit of fist shaking to uh, our friends at the Lost Production and Writer's Office. Um, Anyhow, the next scene, it's wonderful for its cross story commenting. In a nutshell, Hurley doesn't want the job of divvying up the food for fear of people hating him. As is implied, uh, once we see that he wins the money at the end of the episode, and at this point in the episode, it certainly has been implied. Locke responds that everyone has their job and that he has had jobs he didn't like. Perhaps such as at a box company, a box company owned by Hurley. So, you know, again, we just kind of have this little scene where it's, you know, it Hurley is sharing his discomfort, which is referencing the end of the episode that we haven't seen yet upon first viewing. And Locke's answer is referencing a job that Locke had in the past. So it's just kind of this little... What wonderful little uh, tied-up moment here! As the flashbacks start to wrap up, Island Hurley wants to dynamite the food, showing his inability to accept responsibility. Uh, which, of course, in and up itself is interesting, considering the great responsibility that he will have uh, come the end of the uh, of the series. But anyhow, that's contrasted by him being outed as the Lotto winner. This is a flashback device being used at its best. A conversation between on-island and off-island storylines. The flashbacks end with a touching, underplanned revelation, at least in my mind, Uh, maybe it's not a revelation, but certainly is the implication. Hurley would rather keep his happy friendship than be the millionaire. Anyhow, coming back from commercial, we see that Hurley has a plan, albeit, upon first viewing, one that hasn't been revealed yet. Come on, Jack. The inventory's done. This is the only way. Are you serious? Dude, there's enough food in there to feed one guy three meals a day for another three months. We have 40 people. It's just not going to work. If you put me in charge. This is what we're doing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if that last sound didn't come across great, it was Hurley really just kind of laughing and exhaling uh i mean essentially at the notion that uh he got what he wanted and i love that aside from the fact that his solution is democratic and fair and of course the stuff of a jacquino montage it shows hurley being a leader he says he was given this task and that he's done it uh it shows us that there's another way to lead one of you know a compassionate sharing of resources not a this is mine that is yours hoarding uh and of course we also get the story payoff of claire's peanut butter it's it's a wonderful moment it's smile inducing um it can't quite live up to uh you know the imaginary peanut butter that we saw in the last season just because that was so evocative and so wonderful that to actually have the real stuff in front of you it doesn't quite you know fill your mouth with the creamy nutty flavor but it does uh It does certainly pay that moment off very, very nicely. And I mean, indeed, there's just so much happiness shown uh, throughout this ending montage. Granted, we probably should expect at this point, you know, or at least be suspicious to have the the rug pulled out from under us. Um, But for such a tense program, it's nice just to see them letting their hair down at the end. We also do, of course, see a slightly darker side, Sun burying the bottle. And bearing the fact that the raft has lightly failed. I mean, she she is all but literally burying the truth. There that there that bottle is, a symbol of the truth that the raft more than likely has failed. That's one of the last things that would just randomly fall off, you know, as you're, you know, taking a leak as you float away or whatever. But I I, I just I'm I love the symbolism of it that she's bearing the truth. She's decided to to keep this burden to herself. You know, Claire and Shannon. I mean, they know too, but they passed it off to her. And Sun has just said, I'm not going to burden anyone else with this. And of course, uh, eagle-eyed viewers will note that before she puts the bottle into the hole, she has her ring. And after she buries the bottle, her ring is gone. And now we we then turn to one of the great heartfelt endings of the entire series. Something which asks us to question I would argue, on a very basic level, who we are and what basic conceptions and prejudices we bring to this show. Uh, excuse me. Hi. Back where you guys, uh, where you came from. Is there a woman named Rose there? Black chicken fifties. Just, it's such a touching moment, and uh, I, I know it's one that's better—better better when you rewatch it, when you know that it's coming. Uh, I mean, it was—it was, it was an incredibly, profoundly moving scene to rewatch uh, in preparation for the podcast. I, you know, I was absolutely in tears for 60 seconds leading up to uh, to Bernard's line there, and it's just. It's just so wonderful. It speaks, you know, it speaks to the the love that the two of them have for each other, the faith that they have in each other, and I mean, quite frankly, to, to to talk about some of the prejudices that we bring, you know, all those episodes ago, when Rose first said her husband was missing, did you expect it to be a white guy? Probably not. I know I didn't, and you know, it just through the simple statement of their love as a couple, you, uh, you know, you smile, you cry, and uh, perhaps for many of us, you know, you feel slightly ashamed that that you didn't, um, you didn't think that that's who that was when, when the door opened to the hatch. Um, it's just, what a marvelous ending, and then to kind of uh, tack on the epilogue of it, of uh, Rose at the other side of the island. She has, you know, her her goodies rationed out from the hatch, and she takes the Apollo candy bar and she pockets it, knowing that uh, her husband, who she has the faith that she will see soon, uh, you know, that he'll enjoy it. And just, you know, what an ending, what an ending. And a credit to the show, too, to not then tack on some sort of, you know, some sort of crisis to propel us to next week. Break our hearts, leave them broken. If there's any tension for next week that we're gleaning from this episode, it's bring these two people together. That's that's what we're getting. What's the momentum for that? You know, we don't need somebody to turn the corner and say, you know, and the bad guys are coming, you know, or anything like that, or I'm going to go kill John Locke as Jack ended one episode. Uh, I believe it was the Boone funeral episode, but just the wisdom that they have to just say, you know, no, we're 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 going to end this episode with um, the conviction that the oh no, that the story that we've told, the characters that we have, can sustain it. That it doesn't need a writer to get in the way. You just have characters existing free of the show, and uh, it's just so so marvelous, so marvelous. And the episode ends on that note. Luckily, we have some more uh, podcasts to go. But I mean, what a what an ending, what an absolute ending. But uh, well, it can only be a bit of a a bit of a letdown now to take a peek at Lostpedia to see any bits and pieces that I've missed. And uh, well, we're gonna do that, even if it is a bit of a downgrade. And I'll mention too, this is uh, one of the rare times where I have not looked at Lostpedia yet at all. Normally, I've taken a peek after watching the episode and doing the notes but before the podcast so anyhow let's see what Lostpedia says about everybody hates Hugo. They mention as I did that Walt's face can be seen in the milk carton from which Hurley drinks during his uh, dream sequence Uh, so that certainly is amusing. Um, They mention as well that uh, Saeed's comment about um, concrete poured over a disaster such as Chernobyl Um, and then they tack on to that in season five says lostpedia it would be revealed that the incident involved a nuclear bomb being detonated next to the electromagnetic pocket at the swan construction site so maybe i take back my criticism a bit i mean they 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 sell you on a nuclear disaster and you know there's electromagnetism and what's the end result a nuclear disaster and uh, electromagnetism so fair is fair uh, this is the first episode where uh, Adewale uh, joins the cast <laughs> uh, playing Mr. Echo. I-, I laugh because not only will I not dare mispronounce his last name, but after the uh, the uh, uh, clarification given to me via Twitter by Mr. Giacchino about his name, I, I think it's just better to say, refer to uh, Adewale by his first name and to say what a big fan I am of his work in the uh, in this, in uh, the Mummy sequel, and in, in so much that he does. So with that, we'll move on. Uh, this episode is also the, um, uh, the the introduction of Libby and Cynthia Watros joins the cast. Um, and uh, this is the first time and the last time until the end, says Lostpedia, that a main character was added to the cast in an episode other than a season premiere. Uh, there's, of course, also the um, first appearance of Bernard, <laughs> if you didn't get that. Um, uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, uh, when Hurley wins the lottery, the announcer on TV says, "That's right, Mary Jo, because this is the 16th week without a winner." That's the voice of Carlton Cuse, which I think actually is a leftover uh factoid perhaps from uh from um the first time we saw that flashback. Um then Lostpedia mentions a couple uh, rather nitpicky bloopers and continuity errors. Yes, Sun has the ring and then loses it, but before that, there's a shot where she has no ring. You now what do you want to? What can you do there? Also, uh, they say that uh, the, the band Hurley asks Starla out to go see. They were formed in 2004, so there's a little bit of a, of a you know continuity error there. You know, eh, whatever. Um. <laughs> so from that uh, rather definitely definite let down from the uh, the great heights with which the episode itself ends I suppose it's now time for us to start to wrap up next week's episode is episode 205 entitled and found did you get the ellipsis there the dot 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 because it's dot 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 and found they're being amusing again because it's lost and found there you go haha. A reminder, too, that new episodes launch to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcasting Network on Mondays, so you can wake up bright and early and download the latest episode. You can share feedback a whole host of ways. You can leave a message on the voice message line by calling 732-707-1815. You can say hello to me on Twitter, where I am looking back lost. You can send me an email uh, to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. You can visit the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And, of course, you can find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always appreciated. So thank you very, very much for listening to this uh, incredibly touching and just all-around wonderful episode. And I look forward to speaking with you all next week for episode 205 and found. Take care and bye-bye. Everything is cool. We had a talk, and they believe we were on the plane, too. Swell. Guess we can all sue Oceanic together.